Because community is something we create by sharing. Sharing our common interests. Sharing what we have. Sharing our hope for the future. Because we all need a place where we can feel safe and be loved. Because the challenges in Winnipeg are not impossible to solve, and we must come together to solve them. Today on Because Radio, the St. Boniface Belvedere officially opens, creating an enjoyable experience while connecting communities. Youth and philanthropy participants pitch for a good cause during the YIP 20th anniversary pitch party. Youth take part in the democratic process through civics student vote. And we'll have a preview of the latest episode of Because and Effect featuring Kate Friesen of The Story Source. All this and more on Because Radio. Hello and welcome to episode number 10 of Because Radio. My name is Robert Zirk. And I'm Sonny Promolo. How are you doing today, Rob? I'm doing well, thanks, Sonny. How are you? Doing fantastic. The weather's definitely starting to look up there. For sure. And just in time, too, for the Canada Day long weekend as well. Oh, it's going to be a great one this year. Absolutely. We've got lots to get to today. Um, today's foundation feature is focused on community, but I think it's pretty fair to say that our entire episode today has a really big community focus. We'll be learning about civic student vote and how it's getting youth involved with the democratic process. We'll have coverage from the uh, the Youth and Philanthropy 20th Anniversary Pitch Parties, a fantastic event that was held last week. We'll have excerpts from Because and Effect with Kate Friesen of The Story Source, and to start things off today, we're also going to have some highlights from Monday's grand opening of the St. Boniface Belvedere located along Taché Avenue. If you haven't been out to, uh, to check it out yet, it's definitely worth taking a walk and enjoying the beautiful view. You can see a great view of downtown Winnipeg. So we'll learn all about the Belvedere coming up right here on Because Radio. This week's foundation feature on Because Radio focuses on community. Welcome back to Because Radio. Robert Zirk here with you today. On Monday, the Winnipeg Foundation hosted a grand opening for the St. Boniface Belvedere. If you haven't seen the Belvedere yet, it's a remarkable space. The Belvedere juts out over the riverbank to provide a very scenic view of downtown Winnipeg, and it also features a new art installation called Far West by local artist Marcel Gosselin. Rick Frost, CEO of the Winnipeg Foundation, explains some of the historical significance for the Belvedere. The Coeur de Bois and the very first settlers to our city landed their canoes right on the river at this point. And right near this spot, Bishop Provencher also welcomed the first four Grey Nuns here in 1844, 26 years before Manitoba even became a province. And just last week, the Grey Nuns celebrated 175 years of service to our province. Carol Phillips, the executive director of the Winnipeg Arts Council, spoke to the vision of artist Marcel Gosselin for his new public artwork that's on the Belvedere. The light within Marcel Gosselin's sculpture recalls how, coming upon the St. Boniface area at 1 a.m., the nuns were guided to the shore of the Red River by the bishop and his lantern. 
The floating plates that you see on the top of the sculpture represent the eight hands of these nuns coming together and being instrumental in founding, preserving, and protecting the foundational institutions of St. Boniface. The institutions are represented by the triangular windowed obelisk, which rises upward and tapers from the base to a vanishing point in the sky. The title, Fa West, has been translated by the artist as Far West, but he notes that this play on words will also read as Lighthouse West to the French speakers among us. I spoke with Norm Gousseau. He's the CEO of Entreprise Riel, an economic development and destination marketing agency in St. Boniface, St. Norbert, and St. Vital, to get a little bit of background on what drove this project. The Promenade Tachy, which was, I guess the ribbon was cut on it in 1984, was starting to look a little worn. And uh, sidewalks weren't wide enough. A lot of people were trying to get through here, but yet it was, you know, it was just not conducive for pedestrian traffic and cyclists and that sort of thing. So we started talking about that, and of course, it would have Foundation is at the table right away on these things, it seems. Somehow they hear about it and they're there. Rick Frost was at the table and he said, you know, how about if I spend a little bit of money, help you guys get it to uh, conceptual design uh, level? So we did that with uh, with a couple of architects at Sengaburi and Gary Hildeman. And uh, it allowed us to dream. And then once that dream got going, then we're just like, that's it. We're going to deliver this thing. So as, as a community, as all the stakeholders, including the foundation and the forks, uh, we got together and kept putting the pressure on to make it happen. And, and here we are today cutting the ribbon on something that's going to be a, leg- that's a legacy for the city of Winnipeg, I think, and, and, and tourists who, uh, who would come and have a look at our, at our wonderful city. Norm also spoke to how the Belvedere and the renewal of the Taché Promenade helps to build greater connections between St. Boniface, the Forks, and Upper Fort Gary. It's a wonderful community that's rooted in, in history that should be celebrated and it should be part of the greater of greater Winnipeg. And, and these connections by creating these trails, you know, physical connections with the rest of the community is very important. And people discover, uh, you know, be it discovering St. Boniface or discovering the Forks or different areas like that. These types of, this type of in- infrastructure encourages people to get out of their cars and walk or cycle and, and, uh, and get around the community. And you discover a heck of a lot more of your community with those types of uh, modes of transportation as opposed to a vehicle. Mayor Brian Bowman was also at the grand opening for the St. Boniface Belvedere and emphasized that the project wouldn't have been possible without the collaboration of governments, organizations, and the community. The stars had to align, and they did on this project at the right time, with the right people and resources that were available. And so, uh, you know, it started with a, a, a city councillor who is passionate about the community that he represents and strongly advocating and building the collaboratively the support on council to to support this project not an easy feat with the dollars involved um, it uh, you know obviously involved the collaboration from uh, the federal government and of course the support of the Winnipeg Arts Council and of course uh, last but not least the the Winnipeg Foundation a million dollars for a project like this is a significant investment for all those that support the Winnipeg Foundation that need a reminder on what the benefits are of supporting the Winnipeg Foundation you just simply need to come for a walk on this and and see it firsthand. Mayor Bowman also noted the variety of roles that the Belvedere will play in enhancing and connecting communities. This is more than just, uh, you know, just a walkway. I mean, this is river stabilization, riverbank stabilization. It's eight active transportation connectivity to our city and to the Forks. It's, It's celebrating our history. It's better connecting a lot of people and places in our city, and, and it's doing it with a, a heavy dose of public art to uh, remind uh, Canadians of the rich history that's here in St. Boniface in the city of Winnipeg. 
St. Boniface Councillor Matt Allard was a major advocate for the Belvedere and the Taché renewal, and noted how the support from his constituents was a driving factor for the project's realization. It was like St. Boniface came out unanimously supporting this project to say, come out and build this project, it's required, we all want it. And we talk about public works projects of this scale, it's rare to get that level of uh, almost unanimous support for something. There were so many people who came to say, Yes, this is the right direction, and it's it's great to see it, uh, yeah, finally all complete. And Councillor Allard has a message for all Winnipeggers: Come visit, come walk, bike, or even uh, or even come and park somewhere and have a walk around. Uh, you know, there's beautiful facilities at the Forks. There's beautiful facilities at St. Boniface, and you can easily have a beautiful afternoon if you want to come check it out. If I can maybe quote, uh, I think this came from Rick Frost. You know, this is like Winnipeg's living room, and so come come over kick your feet up, have a coffee, maybe have a drink, whatever you're looking for. Just come come with your family, relax, and enjoy the experience. You can learn more about the opening of the St. Boniface Belvedere by visiting the Winnipeg Foundation website at wpgfdn.org. For Because Radio, I'm Robert Zirk. Thanks, Robert. Up next, the Winnipeg Foundation's Youth in Philanthropy program recently celebrated its 20th anniversary. The program connects high school-aged youth with local charitable organizations to learn about what they do and have an opportunity to make grants based on the causes that are important to them. The celebrations culminated with a pitch party on Monday where three current Yippers and three Yip alumni made their cases for local charities. We'll have highlights from the celebration coming up here on Because Radio. Welcome back to Because Radio. On June 17th, the Winnipeg Foundation held its very first youth and philanthropy pitch party to celebrate Yip's 20th anniversary. Pitch party is a take on the foundation's fast pitch event, and during the pitch party, three Yippers and three Yip alumni had the opportunity to create a three-minute elevator pitch for the charity that they care about. Although they were all winners, the People's Choice winner was awarded $500, and a Yip Grand Prize winner and Yip Alum Grand Prize winner were both awarded one. During the event, I had the pleasure to speak with each of the winners. Here is People's Awards Choice winner, Marshall Morisot, on his experience with YIP and the Youth Parliament of Canada. I was really nervous and really scared that I would forget what I was saying, but I feel like I pulled it off really well. Speaking of pulling it off, you won the People's Choice Award. So how does it feel knowing that what you did there today is going towards such a great cause? I'm really proud that it's going to Youth Parliament in particular because... They were so instrumental in me becoming the person that I am today. And without the Reconciliation Fund, I wouldn't even be here. I wouldn't have done half the things that I've done this year alone. Why is YIP so important to you and your growth as a youth here in Winnipeg? YIP was really important to me because it helped me figure out a lot of things concerning passion. It helped me identify why people are passionate, why they aren't, what motivates people to do volunteer work for their communities, and... Just getting out there and experiencing more things was amazing. And I look forward to the future of YIP. All of you are going home regardless with, I believe it was $150 for every single person that went up there. What was the thought process going up and leading into this? Leading into it, I was really focused on perfecting my speech, on getting it just right, on hitting all the key points that I wanted. And there was a lot of internal discussion about what I should exactly talk about going into this pitch party. 
Can you share a little bit of why people should care about Youth Parliament of Manitoba? People should care about Youth Parliament of Manitoba because it's a place where youth from all across Manitoba can have a chance to experience a political lifestyle, where they can experience political discussion, where they can talk about things like the meth crisis in very serious tones, and they can learn a lot just from hearing the intellectually stimulating discussion that goes on there, and it's really just a wonderful experience. I also spoke with YIP Grand Prize winner Tim Unger about his experience with YIP, the pitch party, and why Mosaic Family Resources Network means so much to him. Um, so I was super nervous going up there. Uh, I had to do my best to like not shake, but I think I did a good job of like just delivering my speech. And yeah, when you were first approached about being on stage, what were your thoughts? So I don't really do public speaking much, but in the end, I decided to do it because it's for a good cause. Yeah, and even though you don't do public speaking that much, you did an amazing job, of course. You did win the uh, Yip Pitch Party Prize, and that prize will go towards Mosaic Family Resources Network. Why is Mosaic Family Resources Network so important to you, and why did you want to share their message? So my grandparents were immigrants, uh, and Mosaic does a lot to just help immigrants, you know, learn English, um, parenting, uh, and just sort of like family programs. So I really aligned with the cause and I wanted to do something to help them out. What are some things that you would recommend to other potential students that are considering the YIP program or don't really even know about it? So it's definitely a really good experience if you're thinking about joining it. You learn a lot about like the city and like um, charities and just philanthropy in general. So if someone's considering it, I would definitely tell them to join it. We opened up a time capsule from 2009 during this pitch party, and that was 10 years ago. So what do you hope YIP accomplishes in the next 10 years? Where do you hope to see YIP? I think I hope to see it in a place where we can do more for the community and less people are relying on these charities because if we help more people out and get them out of that, then, you know, they, they don't need the charity anymore. And lastly, the YIP alum grand prize winner, Aliyah Morochuk, and her passion for YIP and Snowflake Place. I have used my experience in YIP in everything I do. Um, but in particular, I have taken what I've learned from my SIP internship with accessibility and brought that into my workplace. And I have taken my passion that I got from YIP and I'm putting that into my work with Snowflake Place. Why is Snowflake Place really that important to you? I am a volunteer with Snowflake Place, and I volunteer with them because I believe wholeheartedly in their mission to make sure that no child falls through the cracks of the criminal justice system. I have had friends who have that, that has happened to. I've seen it in our community, and I want to do all I can to support them. So how was it being on stage up there with the five other yippers? <laughs> It was really fun. I got to know them a little bit better through this process. I was cheering them on from backstage when it was my turn to be up there. I blanked a little bit, <laughs> but I think that I, I, I did what I wanted to accomplish. You definitely did an amazing job. So again, thank you so much for coming and speaking with me today. Is there anything that you would like to add about the YIP experience that you've had and what you feel that other students should know about YIP who are interested in joining? If you haven't done it, do it. If you're doing it, lean into it. It is such an incredible group. They can give you so much in terms of life skills, passion, community involvement, friendships. Just really take advantage of this moment and then it can serve you for the rest of your life.
Though there can only be three winners, all of the presenters at the event did an amazing job. Thanks to Marshall, Tim, and Aaliyah for taking the time to speak with us. It's youth like them that give me hope for the future. This is Sonny Promolo for Because Radio. Thanks, Sonny. Up next, we're back on the road traveling a few minutes west to visit the Manitoba Basketball Hall of Fame. Because Radio's Jeremy Morantz had a chance to visit and learn all about it in this week's road trip. Welcome to the Because Radio Road Trip. Today, we visited the Manitoba Basketball Hall of Fame. Let's go. I'm Jeremy Morantz. I'm here with Ross Wedlake, the president of Basketball Manitoba and the chair of the Manitoba Basketball Hall of Fame Museum. Thank you so much for joining me, Ross. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. First, let's start off uh, nice and general. Tell folks out there what the Manitoba Basketball Hall of Fame Museum is. It's a space that is dedicated to really two things. Number one, uh, we want to celebrate and mark the accomplishments of individuals and teams who have really created the glorious history of basketball in Manitoba, and their names are posted on a what we call big board, and those are the people that have been inducted into the Hall of Fame. The second part of it is more the museum part, and that's to preserve the artifacts, really, that make up the glorious history of, of basketball in Manitoba. And without a place like this, as probably most people would know, a lot of the stuff disappears because it gets thrown out or, you know, my mother had it and I don't know what she did with it and all that kind of stuff. So it gives a place where uh, those kinds of things can be preserved so that uh, the generation today can really see the history of the game and not, uh, not believe that they started it, basically. That this, what's happening today is really just a product of what has been happening for hundred years. Manitoba, of course, and, and Canada, as you mentioned uh, earlier off mic, is, is very much known as a, as a hockey country, a hockey province. So why uh, is it important for a museum such as this one to exist? Well, it is definitely a hockey place. Canada is a hockey country, but that's changing somewhat too, and I think a lot of that is changing with the immigration patterns. Uh, when we have our uh, provincial tryouts, for example, for our uh, 16U and 15U and 17U teams, many of those young people now are recent immigrants to Canada, and hockey is not part of their culture. And uh, basketball is, because basketball is definitely a global game, much more than hockey is. Uh, hockey is played in certain parts of the world, but not a global game like basketball is. So we're seeing more and more young people being involved. And w whether uh, hockey is, has been number one or not, basketball has always been an important part of our history in Manitoba, and more so in many cases with a lot of local people who have really made their mark. And I think it's important that that... Uh, gets recorded so that, as I said before, people realize that the game that we're playing today is really just a product of the efforts of all of these people for many, many years. Canada really is in kind of a basketball frenzy with the recent win of the uh, the Raptors in the NBA championships. Uh, what do you think that win means for the future of basketball in Canada? Well, it means a lot. I mean, obviously, there's a certain uh, immediate impact of it and that everybody gets excited, but 
it settles after a while and people move on to other things. But I think for young people, for sure, basketball has now been shown to be an important part of Canada, like an increasing part of Canada. And I think that that's going to help. I know that we have seen at Basketball Manitoba an increase in the number of young people who are registering for what's called the WMBA, the Winnipeg Minor Basketball Association. We have an increasing number of uh, questions coming over the phone about how do I get involved as a player, parents asking, because the kids are excited about it. It is, it, it's a great game. And let's be honest, one of the big advantages it has for parents is it's relatively inexpensive. Uh, you know, I think we all know the cost of games like hockey is increasing tremendously with the equipment and renting ice time, et cetera, et cetera, the travel that they do. But basketball really with a ball and a lot of outdoor courts that we have now around the city uh, can be played almost anywhere. And so uh, it's an advantage in that way. And a lot of parents, especially, as I said, parents who are recent immigrants are looking for opportunities for their kids to stay active and looking ways that maybe they don't have to spend a tremendous amount of money. <laughs> there is a huge cultural moment in this country happening around basketball right now. But we're standing here in the museum and I'm looking around and uh, it's clear to me that there is a rich and deep history of basketball uh, that's been going on for years here in Manitoba. So uh, I guess my, my question is, what's your, what's one of, what are some of your favorite things that stand out uh, around us right now in the museum? Hard for me to pick out favorites because this is big. I've put a lot of time and blood and sweat into this place. It's kind of my baby, as I say. But one of the things that I really like is I'm looking at it right now is a timeline that we have, and I put a lot of effort into into deciding what should go into it. And the first date in the timeline is 1900. The last date is 2014. And uh, the, the first one is interesting because in our research, we found that the first recorded game of basketball played in Manitoba was in 1900. And it was played at what was called the old Osborne Drill Hall, which is now at the, uh, where the site of the Great West Life Building is, uh, right at the corner of uh, Broadway and Osborne. That's gone, of course, now. And it's interesting in that the score of the game was four to one. So obviously the skill level was was uh, limited, but get basketball was just starting. We all know that the game of basketball wasn't invented until 1891 in Springfield, Massachusetts by a Canadian, we always say, who was living there at that time. So really when you think the game was invented in 1891 and first was played in Manitoba in 1900, if my math is correct, that's only nine years after it was invented. So that's an, an interesting fact for us to have, but we try to represent different parts of the game in, in, in the history. At the front is the University of Winnipeg. We're a guest here in, the, in their Duckworth Center and we want to give them uh, the uh, front line and so we do put a lot of old Westman stuff in it. One of the things that we just got that I'm looking at right now is a pair of warm-up pants from the early 1970s that was worn by the Lady Westman, as we call them now, or Westman women's team. But in those days, they were called the Westmanettes. And it even says that on the leg of the um, of the uh, warm-up pant, you know, which sounds odd today. As a matter of fact, when I played at the University of Manitoba in the 60s and 70s, the women's team was the Bisonettes. You know what I mean? That was just the term that was used to describe. Uh, uh, and we have things that have that on it. So it's interesting to see how things have changed. There's also a uniform from the late 1940s, the Rockettes, which was a woman's uniform. And the reason it's interesting is because I have the article that goes along with it, and it explains how the young women on the team had to make their own uniforms. 
because of course they had to learn how to sew and look after the home because in those days that was the culture and that was the role of women right and so it's a homemade uniform basically can you just imagine if you ask some of the women playing here today go home and make their own uniforms they would look at you with a pretty funny look <laughs> it's interesting to see the way the game has changed but um, it's also interesting to, as I said earlier just to have a, a record of this stuff so there's a, a tremendous amount of information one that's maybe very important to me is in the corner over there and that is the uh, wood from the jump circle at the old University of Manitoba uh, Bison East Gym where I played and that's gone now of course there's a parking lot there I always say they uh, uh, paved paradise and put up a parking lot because <laughs> it was a great place to play and I jumped many a jump on that so for me personally that's one that I, I look I look at and it brings back a lot of good memories along with the picture that's with it uh, probably a lot of people maybe who might be listening to this don't know this name but Joey Johnson now there's a cabinet displaying his medals. Joey Johnson is probably the most celebrated and successful basketball athlete ever to come out of Manitoba. And I'm sure people are thinking, I never heard of Joey Johnson. Well, he was a Paralympian. He was in a wheelchair basketball. And he won four gold medals in the Paralympics. And there's a display and there's actually one of his wheelchairs hanging above it. And, uh, you know, so there's uh, somebody that really needs to be recorded and recognized for his success. Uh, and Joey's a great guy, he lives in Lorette, Manitoba, and uh, he has been very supportive by allowing us to display a lot of his medals and his uniform or whatever. So there's something here for everybody, really, if you want to take a look, and it does change uh, fairly regularly. You really pack a lot into the space. It is really, it's quite incredible. Um, of course, the Manitoba Basketball Hall of Fame Museum is uh, in the Manitoba Heritage Trust Program. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that program has meant to you? Yeah, we're very happy to be involved with that now. About a year ago, we learned of this program through the Winnipeg Foundation. And uh, what it is, is that uh, we now are uh, collecting donations from all of our friends and or members. And uh, we, uh, it all goes through the Winnipeg Foundation. And there are what are called stretch dollars that uh, the government of Manitoba will put in uh, and that, that will help. And our goal is to reach uh, $50,000. And with the stretch, it will make it 75. And then uh, with that, we can basically use the interest on that amount to cover our operating costs in here. We do have a dinner every second year that does generate some income, and we are also recognized as a level one museum by the uh, Manitoba Heritage uh, Group, and so we do get a little bit of funding from that, where we're almost at up to the $40,000 mark, so we're doing well. We've still got some work to do, but we have until 2021. Uh, to reach our goal, and we will, because we've had great support from uh, a lot of our honored members whose names are on the board over here and other just friends of our museum. People listening out there, they want to uh, learn more, they want to come by, tell them what to do. Okay, it's this building, the Duckworth Center, is open basically almost every day of the year other than statutory holidays. So when the building is open, we're open. So that makes it great because we do have a lot, a lot of traffic goes through here. It's a great site and we're really indebted to the University of Winnipeg for giving us, allowing us to develop this site because it's very visible and as I said, we do get a lot of traffic and still is, I should say, and I keep saying this and I'll keep saying it until somebody tells me otherwise, we are still the only province in Canada that has uh, a, a permanent site for a Basketball Hall of Fame museum. As a matter of fact, there is no national basketball Hall of Fame site. 
So we're very, very lucky. When we have guests here from other provinces and we show them this, they are very envious. And a lot of it, as I said, is the University of Winnipeg allowing us to develop this site. So it's on the second floor of the Duckworth Centre. It's open every day uh, other than statutory holidays. There's no admission. You, uh, If you want uh, tour or somebody to meet you here like me. I can be contacted through Basketball Manitoba and I'd be happy to meet people here and show them around if that's what they would like and I do that often because I need to come here anyways to do a variety of things. So we'll welcome any anybody who wants to come by come and take a look and see and if you've got things out there that is basketball related that uh, maybe your parents or somebody had in your family or you had and you don't want any more give us a call we'd be happy to have it anything like that any memorabilia clippings programs uniforms any clothing anything that is basketball related we're glad to have manitoba basketball hall of fame museum you got to check it out ross thank you so much for talking to me today you're very welcome thank you for being here Thanks for joining us on the Because Radio Road Trip. We'll see you next week, same time, different place. Thanks, Jeremy. Up next, we'll learn about the Civic Student Vote Program that is helping youth engage in their communities and participate in the democratic process. Welcome back to Because Radio. With me on the phone is Lindsay Mizuko, COO of Civics Canada, an organization dedicated to building skills and habits of active and engaged citizenship among young Canadians. This past May, Civics held a democracy boot camp in Winnipeg. Can you tell us a bit about that? So we held a democracy boot camp for Manitoba teachers in Winnipeg on May 2nd and 3rd. And the goal was to prepare teachers for the upcoming federal election this fall. So teachers heard from experts and panelists about the upcoming election and politics and in kind of a insider uh, perspective of campaigns. And they learned about best practices for student vote from their colleagues. And one of the major themes of the event was teaching myths and disinformation and helping teach students about the skills to verify information online and identify reliable sources of information. How many were in attendance and what was the feedback like from the boot camp? So there was uh, about 120 teachers throughout Manitoba at the event, and the uh, feedback was overwhelmingly positive. Many teachers said it was the, one of the best PD experiences they've had in their entire career, mm-hmm. um, and they really enjoyed the speakers, and they don't always get to hear from experts in the field, and they felt it was very insightful for them to learn about these threats to democracy that we're facing and how they can engage the next generation of voters. In your own words, what is civics, and when and how did it start? So we've been running civic education programs for the last 15 years. It started with student vote, and student vote is a parallel election for students under the voting age. So it's conducted during general election. We provide a variety of free resources to schools, and the students learn about government and democracy. They research the parties and the candidates, engage with them through candidate forums, and then it all leads up to student vote day, where they vote on the official candidates running in the election. And we submit the results back to us and we share them publicly and with media so that students can see how they voted compared to their parents. You actually were one of the founders of Student Vote. Why was it important to have that merger with Operation Dialogue? gave us a broader mandate. Our merger took place between uh, 2011 and 2013. So while we were focused primarily on student vote, we knew that there was an appetite for offering civic education programming between elections. And so that's what we've done since 
the merge in 2013. We've launched new programs such as the student budget consultation, which gives young people a voice in the budget process. They learn about government expenditures and revenue sources and provide their insight or their opinion on priorities for the upcoming budget, which is then shared with the Department of Finance. And then we also have a program called Rep Day, which brings elected officials into classrooms for a dialogue on issues and helping students better understand the process of elected representation. Why is it important that youth be involved in the democratic process? Well, we believe that it's important to establish these habits early in life. Research has shown that the habits of voting and not voting are established at an early age and persist over time. So what our goal is through the program is to introduce students to these kind of democratic concepts early on and give them the opportunities to practice habits of active and informed citizenship so that by the time they're 18, they don't question whether they should vote. It's just something that they do. At what age do you feel is a good age to start learning about the democratic process? A lot of our participants are ages 9 and 10, so about grades 4 and 5 and 6. That's usually a good introduction to government. Is there a common misconception that youth have about the democratic system? We get comments through our surveys and through interviews, but I think that it helps demystify the process. I think when you are not aware of how something works, it can seem intimidating. And after participating in the program, they realize, oh, voting is easy. I I can do this. And it just helps break down some of those barriers. There's a lot of talk about fake news in the media today. Uh, Can you tell me about NewsWise and how this literacy program helps youth filter information? Over the last year and a half, we've been working on doing a lot of research and developing tools to help combat myths and disinformation, which is a growing threat worldwide. And we've got a variety of tools that help students develop skills to fact-check information and kind of teach them about the standards of journalism and the role of journalism in democracy, which are all key elements to kind of growing informed citizens. What can I expect for one of those tools? Like, how can I filter information? Well, there's some basic fact-checking tips that you can use. When we're looking at information online, it's hard to tell where it's coming from. And so one of those great kind of skills we teach, we include in our resources, is to you know, search the reputation of a source, which can be done through a Google search or through Wikipedia, and to learn more about who's producing the information. You can also fact-check a claim and see if what's being reported has been reported elsewhere and if it's being picked up by any other credible sources. And then finally, you can even check through a reverse image search how to check if a picture has been used out of context or with a misleading headline where it's been used before. What is the likelihood of someone who has gone through the civics program become active voters in adulthood? Do you have any like statistics or anything like that? We don't have any longitudinal studies at this point, but we've done uh, several independent evaluations with Elections Canada uh, around the student vote program. And what we found is that the student vote program helps to establish key characteristics that have been found among young voters. So that is, you know, increased knowledge about government and democracy in our electoral process, increased sense of voting is an important responsibility of citizens, more increased dialogue with family and friends about politics, uh, interaction with politicians. So all of those components are what we're achieving through our programs, and then those have been linked to young people who vote. How are some other ways you provide learning opportunities to communities throughout Canada? Outside of Student Vote and Boot Camp, we offer the Student Budget Consultation Program, the Rep Day Program, which brings uh, elected officials into schools and through NewsWise. So we work with a very large network of uh, teachers across the country. Um, Right now we're working towards the federal election, and we anticipate working with about 9,000 schools from coast to coast to coast. 
most, and uh, we do that by working with teachers within schools. Sometimes one, sometimes numerous teachers within a school. We provide free learning materials to the schools that they use with their students, you know, lesson plans and videos and slide decks and online interactives, and we just provide support to teachers. So really, we don't deliver the program, we just provide the support and tools. Sometimes it can be hard to decide who to vote for. So for those new to the system, what advice can you give to someone who is undecided or doesn't think their vote matters in the end? Of course, your vote matters, and there's been lots of cases where people won with slim majorities. But um, I think a, a, a great place to start is identifying an issue that matters to you and looking at the options that are presented and what those different parties or candidates are saying or how they want to address that issue. And you can make a choice regarding which party or candidate you prefer. Can you recall any story outcomes from this program? Like, what are some of the success stories so far that you that you can recall? get amazing feedback from teachers about the program. They are amazed that students are talking about politics and, and not just within the classroom, but in the hallways, on the schoolyard, grounds, at home. A lot of teachers get comments from parents saying, gosh, I can't get my kids to stop talking about voting or politics at the dinner table and comments that from parents saying that they voted for the first time because of their kids or they changed the way they voted because of their kids. So the impact of the program goes beyond the classroom and really touches families as well and gives them an opportunity to learn more about the election, which is a great thing for democracy in general. Thanks, Lindsay, and the rest of the civics organization for all that you do. We look forward to the next generation of educated and engaged voters. And thank you for listening to Because Radio. Thanks, Sonny. Coming up next, Nolan Bicknell will join us to share a preview of the latest episode of Because and Effect with Kate Friesen of The Story Source. Welcome back to Because Radio. Robert Zirk here with you today, and I am now joined by Nolan Bicknell. He is the host of Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation with new episodes every Tuesday. Nolan, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Robert. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about episode number 10 with Kate Friesen of The Story Source. Tell us a little bit about Kate and what your conversation revolved around. Sure, I'd love to. Uh, Kate was awesome. Uh, I mean, all the guests have been pretty great, but Kate was especially so. We talked a lot about a lot of different things. It kind of went, uh, it went to some different areas that I was not expecting to talk about when it comes to like vulnerability and storytelling and uh it was just all around a really nice conversation she is the driving force behind the story source she is the founder of that organ or the company that helps out uh, nonprofits and businesses to tell their stories but she was also she also did audio documentaries for the cbc and before that was actually a singer songwriter so i asked her sort of what drove her to want to help people tell their stories and and why that particular sort of thing, storytelling, affected her the way that it did. People would come back to me afterwards and say, the story you told about, or when I heard that song or that story, it made me think of. So when it made a connection with somebody else on a heart level, um, I knew that it was a really, um, really powerful thing. Kate is obviously very socially conscious as well, and she's worked with a, a number of businesses and nonprofits to help tell their stories. What did she have to say about using the power of story to help inspire social change? I actually loved what she had to say on that because it wasn't like 
story is just this magic bullet that's going to solve all the world's problems, obviously. But as Kate says, it story can be used as a spark to kind of get that conversation going. We need some pretty big changes in our systems um, right now. And I think people are seeing story as a powerful tool to connect with other people, bring them on board to make change. If you're asking me, I think it's a really powerful tool. Um, it's one tool. It's mm-hmm. not the be-all and end-all, and it's not the, um, uh, the antidote for, for everything. But we've got to balance. Um, story is a great way to spark a connection and, and, and to communicate, and then you need a strategy in order to make change. One of the best parts of this episode was the wisdom, you know, as you were alluding to before that Kate has acquired over her career and that she shared with you. Um, I'm wondering if there was a particular moment that really stood out at you as one that was especially memorable. Sure. Yeah. We talked about kind of finding your calling quite a bit and doing the work that you're supposed to be doing. And she had a great quote that I'll remember for a long time that kind of talked about finding your cause and your purpose in the world. One of the quotes that really resonates with me, and I can only paraphrase because I'm not good at specific, at at Mm -hmm. direct quotes. No, that's fine. Is by Frederick Buchner. And the paraphrase is, your calling is that place where your deep joy and the world's deep need meet. Ooh. And that has been my compass and my guide. And I have found that within every career that I've done. And when I feel like it's not happening anymore, then I need to have some good, honest conversations with myself about where that deep joy might be. One thing that I was uh, surprised about from your conversation was how often you talked about vulnerability. Did you bring an example of Kate's approach to vulnerability and why it's important? Yeah, we talked about the importance of personal stories. Like, And if you're expecting someone to be able to tell their own story or the story of their organization, you have to know your personal story first. And being honest and vulnerable when you're figuring out what that story is, is kind of the key to the whole thing. And from the vulnerability, you can connect with your audience and then start to really affect how they think. When something's authentic, it means it has to show a little bit about who you are, which means you have to be a little vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking you to be really raw, but you got to be a little vulnerable. So the basic core of a story is a person faces a challenge. Mm-hmm. They make a choice and they land somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know that from yeah. the work yeah. that you do. That's Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. That's Cinderella. That's uh, uh, Fast and Furious. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, and, and, and when you put yourself, and when I say, so now you're the main character in the story, and I want you to think about a time that you faced a big challenge, and you didn't know how to move forward, but you had the courage to make a choice and land somewhere. A story can tackle a big problem because um, it reminds us that one person can make a difference. And when we make that connection and, and then we can expand on that, it's all we've got, really. Mm. It reminds us this is what we've got, our own choice and our own agency. One of the highlights of each Because and Effect podcast is the Just Because segment at the end where you ask the same seven questions to your guests, making sure that they, they don't have too much time to think about it, but <laughs> just provide you with some honest answers um, about each of those questions. And I'm wondering if there were any great moments from Just Because with Kate um, that you'd like to share with us today. Uh, of course, yeah. I asked, um, one of the questions is, uh, um, what advice would you have, for, would you give to your 10-year-old self if you could talk to her, him or her right now? And uh, her answer was really profound. And she tied it in with a story about her, so- her with her son as well. 
Let me tell you a little story. Please. About uh, my 23-year-old son, who a few months ago was going through an existential crisis because all his friends were graduating from university. And he'd spent his four and a half years since high school traveling the world, been to 20 countries, adventured, adventure traveling, um, playing ultimate, doing these amazing things. And he goes, Mom, like, I feel like I should get a job like other people and have this career. And, you know, my parents are no help because they keep saying, just follow just your heart. <laughs> so uh, what I said to Sam and what I would say to my 10-year-old self is it's not a straight line. Um, and you just got to keep listening and see what ways open. And it's actually not the easiest way to live, but it's a deeply satisfying way to live. All right. And I've asked you this, uh, the same question the past few times you've been on the show. Um, and I got to ask it again. What was one of the biggest takeaways from your conversation with Kate Friesen? Um, there are so many, but if I had to pick one, um, it would basically be that following your heart and kind of figuring out what you want to do in life is not a selfish thing. I kind of struggled with that for a long time and she helped me realize that that's not really the case. And she put it really, really beautifully. I think the important thing to know is that following your heart doesn't mean doing just anything you want. And it's not a self-centered thing. Uh, from my belief is that I believe all of us are here on this earth for a purpose. So you're listening for that. And when you find that and you're giving what is of yourself is also that place of, of joy. So it's not a selfish following your heart. It's listening to what do I have to give? Because that's also what I'm going to be getting. I guess to summarize, following your heart is listening to the world and hearing the world tell you what your purpose is. What a beautiful idea. Absolutely. The conversation was filled with little moments and, and beautiful sort of profound ideas and wisdom from Kate Friesen. And I'm really appreciative of her time. And it, I think it turned out as a great episode. That's fantastic. So you've just heard some highlights from Nolan's conversation with Kate here on the show. But if you'd like to hear their entire conversation, um, Nolan, where can people find the uh, Because and Effect podcast to hear the full thing? For sure. If you go to becauseandeffect.org, that's because, A-N-D-E-F-F-E-C-T, becauseandeffect.org. It has all 10 episodes there. You can listen back to the ones. Scott Oak was our very first one, all the way through to Kate Friesen, who is episode 10. Uh, every Tuesday, new episodes come out right at midnight, so you can hear it the first thing Tuesday morning. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate all the support from everyone so far. That's great. So be sure to check out episode 10 of Because and Effect with Kate Friesen. Again, becauseandeffect.org or any podcast uh, player that you use, you can find Because and Effect there as well. Nolan Bicknell is the host of Because and Effect. Nolan, thank you again so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me.
That's a wrap for today's episode of Because Radio. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you to all of our guests who joined us today. Because Radio is produced by the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with 93.7 CJNU-FM. Our Because Radio theme music, Call of the North, was written and performed by Micah Ehrenberg. You can find more of his music at micaehrenberg.com. If you'd like to listen to previous episodes or subscribe to our podcast, please visit becauseradio.org. Again, that's becauseradio.org. And if you have any feedback about today's show, ideas for stories, or suggestions for Winnipeg Impact Makers, please give us a call at 204-944-9474, extension 360, or you can also email us at becauseradio at wpgfdn.org. And you can also follow the Winnipeg Foundation on social media at WPGFDN on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Robert Zirk signing off for Because Radio. And I'm Sonny Pramolo. Thank you so much for listening and have a great weekend.